Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to episode 10 of The Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. I'm Ed Hill, and this podcast really revolves around the series of journals written by my great-great-grandfather, William Moby Scott, way back in the 1840s. So we've now got to episode 10. I suppose that's a sort of landmark. I don't know what anniversary the 10 years is. Wood or coal or lead. Lead. <laughs> It's the lead anniversary. Heavy and grey. Anyway, it's good to be back introducing another episode. Has been a little bit of a delay since the previous episode. But it's been summertime and uh, been away a bit. So um, that accounts for the delay. And uh, extremely hot weather, which has uh, led to an air of general lethargy and... Uh, indolence and <laughs> laziness having said that i think i've recorded it as fast as i could given the circumstances and the time available just to say this episode is now where william is well and truly on the road to italy traveling now at quite a fast pace so um previous episodes up to now he was a long time in paris so there was a lot of time spent talking about the sights and sounds that he was seeing there but uh, now he's sort of on the road again and um, making his way by diligence or stagecoach down to Lyon. And uh, that's where we'll get to at the end of this episode. So he's going from, I think we ended up at Palace of Fontainebleau. And then uh, this next bit will be his journey onwards down to Lyon. The usual things to mention aside from the podcast itself. By all means, do subscribe to the show if you can it all helps with attracting interest and uh, if you want to write a review you can engage me on the twitter account as well which is scott of the historic and that's at 3g grand tour that's the number three 3g grand tour and i've had now set up a facebook page as well and i will give you the username for that one as well at Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. That's with the first letter of the words Grand and Tour capped up and the first letters of the words Great-great-granddad capped up. I hope that makes sense. I think it's probably just the easiest thing is to keep it as the same title as a podcast and hope that works. Because I think it's sort of memorable, even if it's a bit long. I can't remember it, I think, so... I hope that is some benefit of it. So, yeah, if you want to join the Facebook page as well, and um, I'll try and get a bit more interaction going on social media and the Twitter pages and Facebook page and stuff like that. 
be great to hear from anybody out there in podcast listening land who uh, wants to engage. I think I've, I've actually done a WT social thing as well, the kind of Wikipedia version of Twitter. <laughs> When everyone was uh, wondering whether Elon Musk was going to take over Twitter and there was a great deal of outrage about the freedom of speech element that might be curtailed on it and things like that, um, I thought I might go to what might be considered a more civilised and intelligent social media platform such as WT Social, which to some degree is. <laughs> the only problem is nobody's on it, which which really says all you need to know about <laughs> about the internet really no one really wants to be polite and reasonable and have intelligent discussion that's that's not what the internet's for what are you guys thinking uh, <laughs> anyway there's some quite lengthy explanations in this next episode and i'm listening back to it, i think god i've whittered on a bit about various things that i've decided to talk about but i hope they're of interest it's usually by reading the journals, there's something in them that triggers my interest and then I look into it a bit more and that's where the research comes into it. And so I suppose you either like, like the choices that I've made or, or you're bored to tears. <laughs> but by all means, give me the feedback regarding that. Ed, just shut up talking and just read William's journals. As I said, my dear wife did say that might be a better option. I think I'm mainly educating myself, to be honest. <laughs> I don't know about the rest of you. So... um at least it's had one benefit, just educating me. But I hope it is of some interest to you out there as well. So anyway, I've been explain the next beginning of the episode. So yeah, he's going on from Fontainebleau and he's going to carry on. So this next bit is very much him on the diligence with all the other passengers. And he's describing his journey now through the towns and villages on the route from Fontainebleau down to Lyon. When I was a kid, we used to drive down to the south of France quite a lot to go on holiday and often stopped at Lyon ourselves to sort of have a bit of a break in the journey and sometimes stay overnight. So even in the days of the 1970s, driving down to the south of France in an old Austin Princess, for those who don't know, that was an old British Leyland car that looked like a wedge of cheese and uh, <laughs> and went along about as well as a wedge of cheese with wheels would do, to be honest. But anyway, that was what we used to travel down in. And um, we'd stop off at some hotel there and then carry on the rest of our journey. Anyway, enough of reminiscing about the good old days when cheap flights weren't available and uh, you had to uh, physically yourself get from A to B rather than just sitting in a tin tube flying at uh, 30,000 feet for an hour. Talking of times and travel changing, if you didn't like the Austin Princess, how about trying the stagecoach, mate? That's not a lot better as you're here. Moaning mini. <laughs> so I must get on. Yeah, yapping away to myself. It's far too long. This next bit just starts with him on his journey on the diligence. And uh, I think he says he stops somewhere and then starts again. So hope you enjoy. Having stopped here for about two hours, we resumed our journey, and at a short distance entered again the immense forest, which contains, I believe, not less than 34,000 acres of land. The part we was then traversing was not so sterile in appearance, and bore some signs of cultivation. After clearing the forest, the road lay chiefly across a plain country, and immense unenclosed tracts of land sown with corn, 
which was up to a considerable height. Both sides of the road was lined with apple trees without any fence, the produce of which is chiefly manufactured into cider. About six o'clock we arrived at the pretty little town of Montargis, which is also situated on the borders of a considerable forest near the River Loire, from which there is a canal to the Seine. It is 15 miles south of Nemours and 21 leagues south by east of Paris. Soon after leaving Montargis, the shades of evening surrounded us, and having got a very comfortable seat, I was soon fast asleep and only awoke as the day was just breaking, being aroused by one of my fellow passengers to partake of some excellent coffee to which a considerable quantity of my favourite cognac had been added. Tuesday, April 7th. A beautiful morning, the road now lay over a more undulating country, interspersed with wood and water. The villages were larger and more frequent, and the ground in a much higher state of cultivation than the tract we had passed the day previous. Every half-mile at least there were houses and inns by the side of the road, with their signs, Accommodation à logements à pied à cheval, which means accommodation and lodgings for a man and horse. About seven o'clock we stopped at chatillon sur seine a considerable village to breakfast, and as the inn lay at the foot of a long hill, having finished the coffee and eggs, we set off for a walk of about three miles, which after so many hours' confinement in the diligence I found very refreshing and invigorating. And so I will now endeavour to give my English friends some idea of the vehicle I was now journeying in. A French diligence unites itself, post-chase, stagecoach and omnibus. The coupé in the front contains three passengers and bears a close resemblance to the first. The interior holds six passengers and is exactly the same as the inside of a stagecoach. The rotunda is the omnibus part of the carriage behind and carries eight persons. Then there is the banquetaire on the top for three persons, covered and with leather curtains in front which may be opened or closed at pleasure. In this latter place I had secured my seat from choice for the purpose of getting as good a view of the country as possible. I had for my two fellow travellers a courier going down to Marseille with dispatches, and a young man belonging to the theatre at Lyon. During the whole of my experience in travelling, and of it I have had a tolerable share, I never met two better or more agreeable persons. Though neither of them spoke anything but French, and I scarcely understood ten words of the language at the time. However, we managed to get on pretty well. The courier was always ready to point out anything particular on the road, tell me the names of the towns and villages we passed on the route, or write them down for me. Add to this, my friends were both smokers, and of that I can certainly do my share. They had provided themselves with some bottles of excellent wine, some cheese and Bologna sausages, of which they compelled me to partake. And the banquetaire, being the only place where smoking is allowed, we were, as the Yankees say, pretty well considerably comfortably fixed. The seat for the driver and conductor is thrown far forward, and the conductor, by means of a combination of levers, can throw a very powerful drag on the hind wheels without moving from his seat, when they are either descending hills, or they want to stop the horses. These diligences are drawn by five to ten horses, according to the state of the road and all the cattle. So William uses the word here cattle, but it's not in the meaning of the bovine quadruped that we normally extract milk from, that you might kind of assume when you use the word cattle. It's in the meaning of the word as, a, as an animal you can ride on. So obviously like a horse. Um, but I suppose you can ride on a cow if you wish. You need a very big saddle and very wide legs. <laughs> <laughs> 
and all the cattle used in our journey from Paris to Lyon were either grey or pure white. <coughs> the proprietors of those vehicles do not find their own horses, but agree with small farmers or other persons to furnish them at a certain sum per mile. Nearly the whole of them was driven by their owners, and the conductor always pays them at the end of their stage. The system of travelling in France is extremely well managed. When you take your place, you receive a ticket with a number upon it, specifying your seat, which you cannot change. You are treated with the greatest civility, and are not asked for one farthing. You are allowed plenty of time for refreshment, and when arrived at the end of your journey, you sign the conductor's book to satisfy the proprietor, and your luggage is carried to any place you wish, at a certain and fixed price by a regular licensed porter. I noticed on this day, and indeed throughout the whole journey to Lyon, the immense number of carriers, carts and carriages that thronged the road in both directions. Strings of eight to twelve in gangs. The traffic appeared to be immense, and I have no doubt that the day is not far distant when the Emporium of Trade, that is Lyons, the Manchester of France and Paris, instead of three days and two nights in the diligence, will be reached in eight or ten hours by the aid of man's mightiest agent, steam. So, at this point, I thought I would say a little bit about this uh, diligent stagecoach form of travel that William is on during his journey down through most of France. Apparently, this actual journey from Paris to Lyon was quite a famous diligence route uh, that many people undertook at the time. The thing about the diligence is that they were pretty big, I mean, as William describes it, that's 20 people when he talks about there being uh, eight in the rotunda and then three in the banquetaire, which is the bit on the top, and then three in the coupe and six in the stagecoach bit. So, you know, that's a, like a big minibus, isn't it? 20 people. Also included all the people's luggage as well, which you can imagine weighed a, an awful lot. So, um, but apparently these things, the average speed was about seven to eight miles an hour. So considering how much they'd be weighed down by, you know, if they were full with all the passengers' luggage and persons on board, and you know, it's quite a lot of weight for the poor old horses to drag along. But I think this is why William's sort of saying it unites these three, you know, the post chase and the um, stagecoach and the omnibus, because it's, it's so big. And when you see pictures of them, some of them really do look like quite higgledy-piggledy carriages, really, with sort of bits... <laughs> At one end, sort of a lump bit, and I think that's like the banqueter bit that he spent his time in with the leather curtains. And then there's a bit at the front. And they generally had not only a sort of conductor, but a postillion. So a postillion was someone who actually rode on one of the horses. Rather than sitting on a coach with a whip, the postillion would be actually on one of the horses guiding them. It seems to me like they had a pretty raw deal because they didn't get paid very well. And um, they were out in all the weathers and they were the ones who had to keep sort of hopping on and on and off the horses when there was problems to get sorted either with the stagecoach itself or diligence itself or with the passengers requests and stuff i think it's one of the things where the conductor who was also on board had uh, if you like a much higher status in his job than the poor postillion i mean there's one on record as i've come across that had 34 people on board so you know that's a, an awful lot and i've actually seen a picture of one which is interesting, looking at this transition that was happening at the time between stagecoaches and railway coaches. I've seen a picture of one where the main carriage of it, it's like a, an etching, looks like it could be lifted off by a big sort of crane gantry, sort of crane thing. 
and then that bit where all the passengers and luggage would then be placed on a railway bogey or railway carriage's wheels and transferred. So um, people talk about the idea of uh, containerization these days in which lorries can have a big container and it can be transferred from a ship to a train to a lorry. But they obviously had the idea of doing something similar right back in the 19th century. Whether that was ever successfully achieved, I think probably what happened was as soon as the railway came along, people just stopped using diligences anyway. The interesting thing is that reading William's accounts, and you'll hear this more as this extract goes on, it's the number of times the passengers actually have to get out of the coach because if it's coming across a steep hill or a dodgy bit of road, they were so heavily laden that the poor horses couldn't pull them up the hill. So you'll quite often hear in these extracts William saying, and then we had to get out and walk to the next bit. And I just think that's quite interesting because you never, ever see that in, in any film or any TV costume drama about these times of people actually having to get out. Because sometimes they had to get out and actually push the thing. <laughs> With the horses pulling them along because they were so heavy. And, you know, if it was up a steep hill, there was just no way that they could make it out with a bit of assistance, as it were, from the passengers themselves. So, yeah, I just think it's funny. That's one thing you never, ever see in a TV or film set in these sort of periods of people, you know, the coach are going, right, time to get out, mate. <laughs> We've got to give it a shove. Because when you read William's things, I think he spends as much time walking with this blooming diligence thing as he does actually riding on it. Also, just say it's a nice bit that his relationship there, talking about his uh, fellow passengers. It's very, very nice little bit that where he gets on well with them. Their good bottles of wine and their um, Bologna sausages and stuff. And yeah, uses this term as the Yankees say we were pretty well comfortably fixed. He uses the word Yankee a lot to describe Americans in that way. Another thing I thought I should mention because William now quite regularly will say the population of the town was and how many leagues away it was from Paris. If we don't know, a league, which is uh, says a, seems to be a slightly imperfect unit of length, it's described as the distance a man can walk in an hour. So that's how far a league is, and it's roughly about three miles. If you if you assume that when someone's walking along, they, they walk at about three miles an hour, then a league equals about three miles. <laughs> So um, there are, I just thought I'd mention that because he pretty well always uses a league. Occasionally it refers to miles and feet, but um, he often uses this uh, unit of measurement. And um, later on, when we get to uh, Mexico, you'll discover that one of the things I've discovered is just how many different terms and types of units of measurement there were at this time. And all rather sort of idiosyncratic ones, you know, that um, could be quite local. And you can understand why it was a good thing that finally a kind of cohesive and universally agreed units of measurement finally came about because basically everyone seems to have their own version of what an inch is or what a foot is or what a metre is. It was the introduction of the measurements like the metre that did actually help in that regard in terms of properly standardising units of measurement. And actually, I think one thing is I believe at this time, even when William's referring to time, time was quite variable at this time. Time is well. That's good. Time was quite variable at this time. Time was quite variable at this period in history because it was a bit sort of localised to a degree. And it was actually the coming of the railways that finally unified agreed elements of the time across a nation because... At one time, for example, you know, the time in Torquay, say you were saying it was 12 o'clock in 
Torquay compared to 12 o'clock in London, there'd be, there could be a difference of sort of 15 minutes plus or minus, I suppose, whatever the sun was doing and how they were measuring the time in that local area. So it was very imprecise. I don't know how William's measuring time. He doesn't mention having a fob watch or anything like that. I can only assume that he does. Interesting to know, you know, whether he was actually using a mechanical device to be told the time or, or whether these were more imprecise measurements that he's talking about. So the good old diligence, as William says, it will soon be replaced by man's mightiest agent, steam. He uses that term quite a bit as well. And of course, as I've said before, it was revolutionising travel at this time. So despite the relative dangers of early steam railway travel with things blowing up and, and coming off rails and stuff like that, why people adopted it as quickly as they did you know if you were on a stagecoach where you had to keep getting in and out and pushing the damn thing to get where you wanted to go let alone the uncomfortableness of it all as well and let's say a good pace would be eight miles an hour 25 miles an hour on a steam train seems pretty good so uh, it's no surprise that the railways in a way once they took a foothold very very quickly got more established generally About two o'clock, we reached the city of Auxerre, where we stopped to dine. This city is the capital of the department of Yon and an episcopal see. Episcopal see, episcopal see, episcopal see, episcopal It is a very fine place, contains many finely executed fountains and several noble squares. The bishop's palace is considered the most beautiful of any in France. It is sited on the side of the hill of the Rivillon. This city is 25 leagues west by northwest of Dijon and 50 leagues south-southeast of Paris. Population 11,000. The department of Lyon is situated about halfway betwixt Paris and Switzerland. Its extent is about 2,900 square miles and its population, I find by the returns, so that's census, to be 330,000 persons. Its surface consists of undulating plains traversed in the southwest by a chain of hills of no great height. The principal river is the Yon, the climate, temperate, and of sufficient warmth for the wine, whose quality is very good. Corn, hemp, and flax are also cultivated. Having stopped here for about two hours, we recommenced our journey and changed horses at Avalon, a pretty little village just as the sun was setting. Soon after which, we closed our curtains, and as the sailors say, turned in for the night. Wednesday, April 8th. When the day broke on this morning, I found we were travelling in the immediate vicinity of a large river, which I ascertained to be the Saone, and at eight o'clock we crossed it by a fine stone bridge in the town of Chalons-sur-Saone, where we stopped to breakfast. Chalons-sur-Saone is a city in the department of Saone at Loire, it is an episcopal see. Episcopal see. Episcopal see. Episcopal And is defended by a strong citadel. It is the staple of iron for Lyon and Saint-Étienne, and of wines for exportation. 
Here also are various indications of Roman magnificence, particularly the ruins of an amphitheatre. The city contains the old town, the new town and the suburb of St Lawrence. In the first is the Court of Justice and the Cathedral. Here also are large steam engine works belonging to the French government. This establishment is a very splendid one, but the tools are all English. One of the proofs of the wisdom of poor John Ball's government, who prohibits the exportation of machinery, but at the same time allows tools to be exported and English artisans to emigrate so as to give the foreigner all the benefit. Here are a great number of fine wharfs on the river and also a railway from it leading to the coal and iron mines. Chalons is 23 leagues north of Lyon and 75 leagues southeast of Paris. Population 9,000. The department of Zone at Loire is bounded by the Jura, the Rhone and the Allier. It is very mountainous and comprehends a district of 3,500 square miles. After leaving Chalons, the face of the country became very abrupt and had it been a little later in the season, the views would have been particularly fine. Large mountains covered with timber, beautiful verdant valleys, with here and there a village with its white-washed cottages, or the tower of a church perched on a hillside. The road, gradually rising and winding amongst the mountains, bridges thrown across deep chasms, at one side of you a towering mountain, and on the other a fearful precipice. We had a great deal of walking on this day, myself and two friends of the banqueter at one stretch about seven miles, beating the diligence a considerable time, and at the public house where we stopped to wait, we had a beautiful view of the country for at least six miles. The hills of Dijon and Chillon and many other spots in history were pointed out to me, whilst in many places the river Saone was visible, throwing a silver line over the landscape. At twelve we reached Macron, an ancient city and capital of the city of saone et loire much celebrated for its wine, pleasantly situated on the side of a hill near Saone, 13 leagues north of Lyon. The next place we reached was the romantic village of Trevaux, the houses of which are built as if it were on shelves by the banks of a mountain stream. Some are close upon its banks, and others are perched on the topmost mountain's height. After leaving this village, we had about two miles tough walking up a steep and rugged hill, and having gained the summit, the road lay by a gentle descent, and about half past five we reached the city of Lyon. I'm going to stop here. Firstly, just to say that that uh, picturesque town of Trouver is still there. Well, of course it's still there. I don't know, just disappeared, I suppose. Well, I, was, I, I could have done. But uh, yeah, as uh, William describes it, the uh, houses and other buildings are built on these steps going up the side of the mountain by the river. Also, just to say, the word apostolicy, my word, do I have trouble saying that word? <laughs> Episcopal C. It's actually two words, Episcopal and then C. It's basically just the jurisdiction of a bishop. Basically, it's exactly the same meaning of the word diocese. So it's the area that a particular bishop is responsible for. It's just a very difficult word to say. And uh, I wish William had chosen diocese rather than Episcopal C. Episcopal C. The other thing I just wanted to talk about after reading this section was this comment that William makes about the foreigner when he visits the steamworks. The foreigner getting all the benefit of the skill and knowledge and tools of our artisans who 
have come over from Britain and the um, foolishness of John Ball's government, as he terms it. Bit sort of hypocritical, really, isn't it? Because that's exactly what William's doing himself by going out to Italy to help run the railway there. But anyway, it did intrigue me a little bit, this comment, and I just thought, was there any further research that I could do into it? And by a very convoluted and roundhouses way of doing it, I actually managed to do... Now, this is proper historic research. This is, this is like proper... A debate in Hansard, which Hansard is the transcription of everything that's said in Parliament. A debate in Hansard that happened in 1841 on this very subject. I'm just going to really try and pre-see all this and summarise it in as quick a way as I can. But it's not going to be easy. But anyway, up until about 1840, there was a policy in place, an economic policy around the world really every country sort of tended to buy into it but particularly britain of what they call mercantilism okay okay if you fall asleep don't worry so mercantilism is basically it's a bit like kind of if you're an imperial power really making the most of the fact that you're an imperial power and using those assets and it's kind of i would kind of almost say like economic having your cake and eating it you import cheap materials from your empire. You manufacture those from those raw materials, finished products, and then you then export them back into the empire that provided you with the raw materials to make them. That's essentially what Britain was doing. But around that, there are a whole load of other protectionist policies that take place, essentially to maximise your exports and minimise the imports that you pick. So a kind of way of making your country rich by exporting stuff but to do that it kind of has to be a bit protectionist and so you put in all other restrictions and britain did this a lot we had a particular thing called the navigation acts basically that created situations where it was stipulated that materials and goods could only be moved about by british ships and then also goods had to go through british ports to be exported around the empire in fact this is one of the major issues that led to the american revolution because the colonists absolutely resented the fact that they couldn't just import and export their own goods and materials themselves and basically had to go through British ships and have British taxes imposed on them. So that eventually led to them getting thoroughly annoyed with this and deciding to break away from the the old country. Basically comes down to what they wanted to make more money and they didn't like the fact that the, some of the money was going back to the Britain. That's just an understandable complaint. This sort of trade theory goes way back. I mean, it right back into Elizabethan times, really. It was, it was sort of begun to kind of take shape in that era. And it just keeps evolving and evolving in, in this certain way right up until the time that William's talking about and living in. And so, obviously, in the early days, it was things like cotton and flax and silk and things like that. But as time evolved, technology and machinery also became one of these things where, oh, we ought to impose some restrictions on how we import and export and this is mainly mainly if you like uh, what we would now call a thing like intellectual property you know or we don't want to give the benefit of our machinery this great new machinery we're all developing to the foreigner um, so we'll restrict what can be exported in terms of technology and our machinery because we don't want them to get the benefit we want to make the most of it ourselves so by the time you're getting up to the late 18th century early 19th century this ban on exporting machinery 
is in place, but there were certain allowances where things could still be exported, like tools, like the labour of the artisan, that was still allowed to be exported. And so there were certain exemptions which weakened the idea of this protectionist idea of not exporting machinery. And basically the law became impractical to actually enforce because you allow the export of tools. So simply people might think, oh, that's like a, a hammer or a file, some really simple thing. But a tool could also be something like a machine tool, which is an extremely complex machine that's used to manufacture other tools and other components. Or there was an element where you could export the components of the thing to be assembled out in wherever it was in Europe. And so basically the whole law just didn't really work. And also underlying this, there was a great deal of smuggling going on of this stuff anyway. So the technology, if you like, was still getting out to Europe. And if anything, having these restrictions actually encouraged the Europeans to develop their own technology. Because if they couldn't easily just buy it from Britain, they think, well, we'll have to develop our own. In fact, in this debate, they talk a great deal of it, which I hadn't really realised before, in that exhibition that William was walking around in Paris looking at all the models of all the machinery. The actual models themselves were actually very valuable intellectual property, and these things were smuggled to foreign countries because they could then look at the model and see how the machine had been built and build their own version of it. So these models, in a sense, were... <laughs> bit like smuggling a load of vital information on a memory stick or something from country to country because they revealed how the technology worked so basically yeah this law becomes completely impractical and by 1841 when this debate happens in parliament this is exactly this whole topic is what they're discussing and how this law essentially needs to be repealed and so they're having this big debate in parliament about it all There'd been attempts to repeal it before by a MP called William Huskinson, who I might talk about a little bit more later in 1824, but that had been examined. There'd been a big debate in Parliament about it then, and then uh, they decided not to do it then. But it was now getting worse, and the manufacturers of machinery in the UK were complaining about the situation. They wanted the law to be repealed. So there's this big debate going in Parliament about it all and why it's not working and how it needs to be formed. And so they want to set up a committee into looking into this whole question again and get around to probably eventually repealing this act about exporting machinery. So I'm just going to read an excerpt from this debate because it kind of sums it all up in a way. Uh, it's quite flowery, but it sort of encapsulates much of what this debate was about. It's by a man who's seconding the motion an NP called Emerson Tennant. And I'll just read this extract, talking to his fellow MPs, and this is what he says. Members were probably not aware of the vast importance which is attached to this matter. And when they hear that machinery is prohibited, but that tools may be exported freely, they naturally conclude that it is only files and hammers and such implements that are meant by that phrase. But the importance of the concession would be perceived that when it came to be known that under the name of tools the most complex and wonderful machines were permitted to be exported because they were to be used for the production of other machinery and not of any articles of commerce. These tools are in fact machines, not only so, but they are the most valuable of all machinery because they not only produce it, but confer upon it its precision, its finish and its excellence. Some of these tools are of enormous size, 
planing machines 20 to 30 feet in length, drills of corresponding dimensions, and lays that grasp a beam of iron that it would have taken weeks to polish by hand labour and turn it into a few hours as smooth and as delicately finished as an ivory toy. Operations, in short, which were once achieved after the long labour with the file and the hammer in the hand of a workman and liable to all his inaccuracies and defects, are now performed by tools that, like automatons, combining with gigantic power, a precision that is faultless and an ingenuity that approaches to instinct. Now look at the results of this legislation. There is not one country of Europe that is not rapidly advancing in the manufacture of machinery for itself. Model machines are smuggled constantly out of England to each and all of them. They have then our artisans, our tools, our iron if necessary, and even our coals. And whilst they are envious of our manufacturing superiority, they are making rapid advances in constructing machinery for themselves wherewith to rival us in our productions. France, Switzerland, Belgium, Prussia, Saxony, Austria and Russia have each their own factories of machinery and have each made vast progress in its production. The smuggling of machinery from this country goes on at a regular trade, and in fact, in a committee last year, one witness stated it to be his profession to smuggle it, and detailed the terms on which it was done. So that's the end of that ex extract. So kind of that sort of sums up to a degree what this debate is all about. And of course, it's a sort of wider debate because essentially at this point, mercantilism is ending and what they call free trade, the policy or the idea of free trade is coming in, where all these protectionist things that countries operate in are going to be discarded, and the fundamental idea of making free trade available, and just, that just creates more and more wealth and benefits everybody and all nations globally. You would call it a very traditional capitalist view of generating wealth from country to country. But actually, to a degree, mercantilism did help Britain expand its empire, but it gets to a point where it's kind of being counterproductive, and this is the point where it's becoming counterproductive. And in fact, what happens is, not long after this, this Act of Parliament is repealed, and in fact, what did actually happen was it did enable British manufacturers of machinery to export their technology and the machinery much more easily, and indeed, we did massively increase that trade throughout the rest then of the... 19th century so this idea of it that it had been counterproductive up to a point being protectionist sort of works but then after a while it becomes problematic because people try to find ways around it and by doing that it, it, once that starts happening it's it's kind of had it and so then you you're actually better off just saying well let's just trade because if we just sell this technology to the european people they'd be less inclined to develop their own and that's kind of essentially the heart of this situation that William is observing in this steam works that he's looking at in France. And as I say, it's quite hypocritical of him in a way to get lane about it, because it's exactly what he's doing. He's an artisan going into Italy to help them expand and run their railways and get all the benefit. But anyway, hypocrisy never stopped anyone really doing anything, did it? Let's face it. So that took a rather lot of research. I hope I've sort of explained it reasonably well i'm not sure i have really but um it is very complicated and i had to do an awful lot of digging and digging to actually find this proper primary source a bit like williams journals in hansard about this debate that covers this exact topic about the fact that essentially you can't stop 
technology being exported once you start letting the people who have the intellectual property in their houses in their noggins to be able to do it and build it and make it once you let them go abroad as well <sighs> god blimey that was <laughs> some of you may be listening to this, don't don't try and discuss economics again <laughs> Ed it's not your natural environment to discuss economics in a cohesive way The city of Lyon is a large and populous place situated on a neck of land betwixt the Rhone and the Seine. There are three bridges across the Rhone which is here about 650 feet wide, and often on occasions very great destruction is caused by its inundations. One I remember occurred soon after my visit of the most destructive nature, and destroyed to the best of my recollection property to the amount of two million sterling and a great many lives were lost also at that dreadful visitation. This impetuous river rises in the highest and central part of Switzerland, at the foot of Mount Furka, flows for 100 miles to the Valois, and in its course is augmented by numerous and rapid torrents rushing from the chains of lofty mountains on both sides. It then enters the Lake of Geneva at St. Gingolf, and after a course of 40 English miles through the lake, issues from it at Geneva, and runs in a western direction till it reaches Lyon, where it is joined by the Saône, which forces the Rhone in its own direction. The Saône, though losing its name in the Rhone, deserves a short notice. It rises at the southern termination of the Vosges, and joins the Rhone directly below Lyon. It is scarcely possible to conceive a greater contrast than is exhibited by these two rivers. The Rhone runs with astonishing rapidity, owing to the great descent which it has constantly towards the sea. The Seine, on the contrary, is so exceedingly tranquil that it is difficult to say which way the current sets. This character is preserved even at their junction, and it is said that a distinct line of demarcation may be traced between them for a great distance, which gradually disappears till the character of the tranquil Seine is entirely lost, and that of the impetuous Rhone alone remains. The Seine at Lyon is 480 feet wide and is crossed by six bridges. This river was full of vessels and steamboats and lined with wharves, some of them adorned with very handsome buildings, and one that we passed along in entering the town. The rocks or cliffs rose to immense height immediately behind the row of houses on the wharf. We then crossed a very handsome suspension bridge, and in a short time found ourselves in a great square called the Place Louis le Grand, one of the most magnificent in Europe adorned with beautiful lime trees, splendid fountains, and an equestrian statue of Louis the Fourteenth. Right, that's the last section I'm going to read from the journal in this episode. Just as William's getting to the city of Lyon, which of course is the next major stop from Paris, I suppose, on the diligence journey, just to mention a few things here. That flood that he mentions happening not long after he'd visited the city. That happened in November 1840. And there's not a huge amount of references. Obviously, he describes how much the cost of the damage was and um, the fact that there was a lot of loss of life. But it must have been a pretty serious flood at that time. 
I mean, it's not that unusual for the River Rhone and Seine to flood in that area. Even these days, there was quite a severe one in 2006. But the 1841 must have been pretty bad because it's not a huge amount mentioned about it, but it does say that the height of the river at Macon, which is basically the next town up from Lyon, when it happened, was 26 feet higher than its normal level. So that shows it's pretty high, so that's about 8 metres. As I say, I can't find a huge amount of references to it other than this sort of brief one saying that that's how bad it got, and apparently... Many of the villages along the route of the river were flooded badly on that occasion. And then there's quite a lot of plaques marking that event. And in fact, I've seen a picture of one which is marked 1840 and then it's chiselled in the plaque the height that the river got to on that day. So yeah, it must have been a pretty bad one, I think, because it seemed significant at the time if they were going to the trouble of carving out letters and inscriptions on plaques and then putting on walls to to mark how bad it had been. Um, Just this thing he says about the joining of the two rivers of the Seine and the Rhone, and the confluence, as they say, it doesn't strike me that it's very dramatic in the sense that like, the Rhone is a raging river and the Seine is tranquil, which he seems to describe. I'm sure that all rivers can be tranquil <laughs> and, uh, and raging torrents, given the weather conditions. But it is quite interesting, because when you look on a Google satellite map, as the two rivers come together in Lyon, so you've got, looking down on the map, you've got the Seine on the left-hand side and the Rhone coming in from the right-hand side. And they sort of run parallel for a little while through the city. But where they join, obviously, it is quite a wide point. But you can sort of see a sort of demarcation of the types of water that are coming down from both rivers because there is kind of like a observable line in the water. And obviously, the water coming down from the zone is what you'd say is more sedimentary and perhaps a bit more grey and murky and um, the water coming from the Rhone is much more fresh coming from the sources of the mountains, as William describes it. So that's much more clear. And you, so you do sort of see this line of the murky water of the Seine and then the much clearer water of the Rhone coming together. There's sort of a line between the two. And then obviously as the, the Seine just becomes the Rhone, that dissipates and disappears. But yeah, there there is sort of a... A mark of demarcation, as he says there. The um, Place Louis Le Grand, which is where he ends up in uh, the diligence in Lyon, this great big grand square, it's not called that anymore. It's now called the Place Bellecour, and it's had numerous names over the years, particularly during the French Revolution, where it seems to change its name every couple of years. At one time it was the Place L'Egalité, and then the Place... Uh, liberty and then it's i think it's been the plus republican or something <laughs> so but there was in uh, 1792 they did put a guillotine up in the middle of this square so obviously it was the site of some executions that took place there and uh, as you'll read on a little bit further william talks a little bit more about the history of leon during the time of the revolution but uh, we'll have to go into that one on the in the next in next instalment of the podcast. And then he mentions this bridge as well. And I looked at the bridges. And I think there is still one there that it could be. It's now called the Bridge 
Paracel Mazarak. He's probably said that wrong, but it's named after some Czech politician. But at the time of William's travels, it was probably called the Pont Vase, and that was built in 1830. And it is a suspension bridge, and it's still there, and it's quite a big one. So I think that is very likely the one that he crossed. The first suspension bridge was only built in about 1800 in, uh, in America. It seems their popularity as a way of building bridges grew quite rapidly and it seems to be almost like the in-vogue way of building a bridge then. And then, of course, you get well-known ones in Britain, such as the Menai Straits one by, I think that was Stevenson, Thomas Telford, and then there's the one in Bristol by Brunel and that. So that's when the suspension bridge really starts to make a big impression in the engineering world of getting across a bit of water, which I have discussed before, seeing as a kind of fundamental human need to cross bits of water in elaborate ways and interesting engineering solutions. So that's about it. Then the last thing is just very briefly, I've used that word again, briefly, so watch out. But before, when we were talking about the whole mercantile trade thing and exportation of tools, uh, I mentioned a name of one of the MPs who was responsible for that act called William Huskisson. And I said I might mention him later. The only reason why I was going to mention him was he was responsible for that act and legislation sort of in the early part of the 19th century as a member of parliament because he was the president of the Board of Trade. But all his sterling political work is now completely forgotten about, because actually the thing, and this is a sort of interesting addendum, I think, to um, the history that we're talking about now, he was actually the first person to be killed by a steam locomotive. And ironically, it was on the very opening day of the Liverpool and Manchester Railway being opened. I mean, you may be familiar with this story, but it, it was this William Huskinson who'd been responsible about that act of machinery and steam engines being exported or not being exported. Maybe the mighty agent of steam, as um, William would put it, wanted to get its own back on him because he was actually killed by Stevenson's rocket. And I know one shouldn't sort of laugh about these things really, but it sort of seems quite comical, almost like some sort of rabbit-in-the-headlights type circumstance. I'll just try to briefly explain what happened. There were two trains on the day of the opening of the Manchester and Liverpool Railway, which was going to be the very first locomotive line in in the world. And um, Mr Huskinson had actually just got over some surgery because he had a bit of trouble with his kidneys or something, and his doctor had warned him not to go. But he obviously thought this was a very important event, so he should go as the president of the Board of Trade. Anyway, all the dignitaries were there being pulled along a train, particularly the Duke of Wellington, surprisingly, who had his own special carriage built to take him on the one train, being pulled by one locomotive called the Northumbrian, which was going down on the south side of the railway line. And about halfway along, it stopped because it had to refill with water, get its steam up again. And apparently the passengers were told not to get off, but um, I suppose being arrogant MPs and politicians, and perhaps the Duke of Wellington might um, qualify as one of those, they all got out, I suppose, to have a bit of a smoke and admire the surrounding area. While they were all fanning about, congratulating themselves on what a marvellous thing this all was, 
the train rocket was coming up on the north line towards them all and so apparently someone shouted trains coming and so they had sort of two options one option was to sort of completely get off the line and go the other side of the north line or the other one was to quickly scramble back into the coach that the duke of wellington has had and accompanying ones some of them so some of them managed to scramble back in the coach some of them decided to go right the other side of the other railway line as rocket was approaching and <laughs> poor old william huskinson thinking that he might be able to do another trick, which was to actually stand in between the two trains as they were passing one another, or as at least the rocket was passing the stationary one of the Northumbrian on the other side. There was perhaps enough room just to survive if you squeezed yourself in between the four-foot gap between the two trains to survive, but apparently a few of them opted to do this. He was one of them. But as the train approached, he sort of panicked and thought, no, I'm going to scramble back and try and get in back into the carriage. And unfortunately, as he grabbed hold of the door, it sort of swung open right in front of Rocket as, despite the driver's attempt to put on the brakes, just couldn't stop in time. And so he got rather unfortunately smashed forward down onto the line and his leg was very, very badly damaged. So badly damaged that uh, despite being taken to the local vicarage, I think was actually what happened to be treated by a doctor. Um, He died a few hours later. So... This is a thing, <laughs> and it says this, it was widely reported about his death, but also the interesting fact that there was a new fast way of travel that had just been unveiled in Britain, because this story went worldwide. So his poor old death seems to have been a sort of afterthought, or rather ignored, because more people are interested in thinking, well, have you seen this thing, a train that can go 20 miles an hour <laughs> and take you from A to B in just a few hours rather than a few days? So, as I said before, it, people seem to be, even on the day of his opening and railways, someone died, and yet that still didn't put people off from travelling on them. So, poor old William Huskinson, after a, a lifetime's dedication in the political world and uh, holding several important uh, ministries of state, he's most famous for being the one who copped it on the first day, <laughs> the first day that the uh, railway line was opened. I shouldn't laugh, but it's it's just something I can sort of kind of just imagine him. Oh, do I go left? Do I go right? Do I go left? Oh, too late. Uh, <laughs> oh, dear. I just wanted to read from this plaque that was put up to commemorate the incident of poor old William Huskisson's death not long after it had happened. Just because I think it's the real embodiment of... Victorian overstatement and hyperbole but I, I just <laughs> think it's very much of its time actually sometimes it reads a bit like some of the stuff William writes as well but anyway so here it is this tablet a tribute of personal respect and affection has been placed here to mark the spot where on the 15th of September 1830 the day of the opening of this railroad the right honourable William Huskinson MP singled out by the decree of an inscrutable providence from the midst of the distinguished multitude that surrounded him, in the full pride of his talents and the perfection of his usefulness, met with the accident that occasioned his death, which deprived England of an illustrious statesman and Liverpool of its most honoured representative, which changed a moment of the noblest exultation and triumph that science and genius had ever achieved into one of desolation and mourning, and striking terror into the hearts of the assembled thousands, 
brought home to every bosom the forgotten truth that in the midst of life we are in death. So there we are. That really is a bit of a send-off for anyone, really, who, uh, in the face of it, just happened, really, to um, get stupidly stuck between two trains, one going one way, another one going the other. I think this is the other thing that this accident does kind of reveal, though. And this relates to some of William's experiences later on in the journals, that actually this jump in speed of things like a locomotive travelling at, I know it doesn't sound much, 25 miles an hour, but compared to what the speed of something before had been travelling at, so if you're lucky, 8 to 10 miles an hour, of a stagecoach really clattering along at full pelt. This massive step change in speed of which a vehicle was travelling, I think it's something that almost human beings weren't used to reacting to that speed of how things were moving. Of course, now, to us, we cross the road, we're used to cars whizzing by at 30, 40, 50 miles an hour crossing the road. We grow up in that environment of um, being used to speed, of trains travelling at 70, hundreds of miles an hour, all this sort of thing. Speed to us now as a physical concept and the way we react to it, literally on a physical way, is something we grow up with. But for a lot of people, it doesn't sound much that change from, say, 10 miles an hour to 25 miles an hour. But it seems to me it's just something that human beings weren't used to and that's why these accidents seem to keep happening quite frequently. People were just not used to things going that fast (laughs) and I think that was a result of why there were so many accidents as well similar to this where people are hit by trains so that's it I'm gonna finish there I've gone talking on much much longer than I'm meant to I hope you've enjoyed this episode the 10th one completed so uh, that's a bit of a landmark for the journals so the usual things if you want to um, engage in any way, there's the Twitter account, Scott of the Historic, and that's at 3G Grand Tour. The Facebook page, at Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. And anything else, really? Hopefully the gap between episodes won't be quite as long this time as it has been uh, on this occasion. But that's it, going to wrap it up. And do join me again next time for the next stage of William's journey. Firstly, observing things around Leon and then making his way further down towards the Alps to cross over to Italy. Thanks very much for listening. (laughs) 